You know, Elisha was a good guy to have as a friend. Cook up a stew with some poisonous herbs. Elisha could make it fit for consumption. Lose a borrowed axe head in the river. Elijah can retrieve it for you. The dermatologist finds a little leprous spot right there on your shoulder. Elijah will tell you where to wash. Need info on the movements of the enemy army? Elisha can eavesdrop in on the conversation the opposing king is having with his wife in his own bedroom. He's privy to divine surveillance. Find yourself surrounded by troublesome circumstances, afraid and alone. Elijah can open your eyes to the angelic army that surrounds God's saints. And he can blind the eyes of those who would desire to do you harm. He did all that and more for his friends. Elisha was a great guy to call your friend, which illustrates the benefit of having good and godly friends. I'm hoping you're making some good friends. You know, a Christian friend can do all these things and more. He can neutralize the poison of this world. A Christian friend can help us retrieve losses in our lives. Good friends heal sore spots. Friends provide divine insight. It's been said a faithful friend doubles our joys and divides our sorrows. And the Shunammite woman would certainly testify that her friendship with Elijah had done just that. Enhanced the joys in her life and relieved her sorrows. You remember years earlier, this woman and her husband had befriended Elisha. Whenever he passed by, they invited him into their home for dinner. Eventually, they even fixed up a guest room just for him. He stayed at their house whenever he was in the area. And as a token of his gratitude to them, Elisha said that he would pray that they would have a son. God granted his request. Years later, though, that son became ill and died. And Elisha again proved to be a good friend. He raised that young boy from the dead. That's what we've been studying about over the last several weeks. But now in chapter 8, Elisha again looks out for this old friend, the Shunammite woman and her son. He divulges to her some strategic information that he obtains from God. Then Elisha spoke to the woman whose son he had restored to life, saying, Arise and go, you and your household, and stay wherever you can, for the Lord has called for a famine, and furthermore it will come upon the land for seven years. So the woman arose and did according to the saying of the man of God, and she went with her household and dwelt in the land of the Philistines, Seven years. Now it came to pass at the end of the seven years that the woman returned from the land of the Philistines. And she went to make an appeal to the king for her house and for her land. Now apparently the Israelite officials thought she would never return. And so in her absence they confiscated her property and her possessions. Now that she's back, she wants to resume her former life. And so she prepares for an appeal. Verse 4. Then the king talked with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God. Now you remember Gehazi was the former servant of Elisha before he got fired for his greediness. You remember that story where he sort of coaxed payment from Naaman after Elisha had healed him of the leprosy. Elisha didn't want any payment, you know, freely received, freely given, but Gehazi was of another sort. 
Well, the king of Israel is talking to Gehazi and he says, Tell me, please, all the great things Elisha has done. And boy, that must have been an interesting conversation. Because Gehazi had been there. He, he had been Elisha's right-hand man. He knew the stories. King Jehoram and Gehazi are sitting around, jawing, just rapping with each other, just sort of hanging out together. When the king wants to hear about the miracles of Elisha, man, amaze me with God's power. Now understand, this was merely entertainment on King Jehoram's part. This king wanted to spend a nice evening just sort of admiring Elisha's special effects. Here was the king's downfall. He enjoyed watching Elisha's miracles, but he could care less about Elisha's message. You see, Jehoram, the son of Ahab, should have repented of Israel's idolatry. Which brings up an interesting point. Apparently, Elisha had many admirers, but very few followers. This could also have been said about Jesus, remember. There were those who marveled at his miracles, but wanted no part of the way of life that he taught and that he exemplified. You remember in Luke chapter 23, when King Herod tried Jesus, we're told that he had desired for a long time to see him because he had heard many things about him and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. That was Herod's motivation. But when Jesus didn't perform up to Herod's satisfaction, we're told Herod treated him with contempt and mocked him and sent him back to Pilate. Herod may have been a spectator, but he was far from a follower. And this is the case with people today. They're spectators, but they're not followers. Jesus is a fascination to them. He's sort of a hobby to them. They watch television specials that speculate about Jesus. Oh, they might be admirers of Jesus, but they've never embraced Him as Lord and as God. I saw a bumper sticker yesterday that said, Try Jesus. I thought, how awful. How do you try the King of the universe? How do you try the Lord and the, and the God? You don't try Jesus. You bow down on your face before Him and you give your whole heart to Him. Well, Jesus too has many admirers but few followers. Well, the story continues in verse 5. Now it happened as He was telling the king how He had restored the dead to life that there was the woman whose son He had restored to life appealing to the king for her house and for her land. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, this is the woman and this is her son whom Elijah restored to life. I mean, the Shunammite woman and her son, they couldn't have picked better timing. They walk up right when Gehazi is telling the story about them. And when the king asked the woman, she told him. And oh, how this must have pleased the king. He gets to hear the incredible story straight from the horse's mouth. So the king appointed a certain officer for her, saying, Restore all that was hers and all the proceeds of the field from the day that she left the land until now. And so she gets her land back. In addition, she gets back the profits that it had yielded over the last seven years. Now remember, Ahab was a land grabber. Remember, he stole Naboth's vineyard. We're going to read about that again soon. There's no reason to think that his son didn't have the same tendencies the fact that he gives the land back to the widow shows how impressed he was at the timing of her visit. It was obvious to the king that he had just experienced an act of God's providence. Well, then Elisha went to Damascus. 
And I suppose you could say that House Speaker Nancy Pelosi followed in his footsteps last week. She too went to Damascus. But I doubt if her visit had the same impact as Elisha's. Ben-Hadid, king of Syria, was sick. And it was told him, saying, the man of God has come here. That's not what they said about Pelosi. The king said to Haziel, his servant, Take a present in your hand and go to meet the man of God and inquire of the Lord by him, saying, Shall I recover from this disease? So Haziel went to meet him and took a present with him of every good thing of Damascus. Catch this now. You talk about a present. Forty camel loads. And he came and stood before him and said, Your son, Ben-Hadid, king of Syria, has sent me to you, saying, Shall I recover from this disease? King Ben-Hadid wants a prognosis from Elisha. And Elisha said to him, Go, say to him, You shall certainly recover. However, the Lord has shown me that he will really die. Now, King Ben-Hadid, he's a goner. He's going to die. But not from his current illness. He'll recover only to be assassinated by this messenger. And so Elisha tells him, you tell him he's going to recover. But I know that he's going to die another way. And then Elisha set his countenance, notice this, set his countenance in a stare like this. He set his countenance in a stare until he was ashamed. And the man of God wept. Elisha cast This long, steely stare at Haziel. It must have been a nerve. Does that unnerve you? Somebody casts a stare at you like that, you know, it's going to kind of shake you up a little bit, unnerve you a little bit, you know. That's what it did to to Haziel. But as Elisha stared, as he gazed at Haziel, God revealed to the man of God Haziel's future. The prophet was staring while God was speaking. And what God told Elisha caused him to weep. Haziel would commit atrocities against God's people. And Haziel said, why is my Lord weeping? He answered, because I know the evil that you will do to the children of Israel. Their strongholds you will set on fire. And their young men you will kill with the sword. And you will dash their children and rip open their women with child. So Haziel said, But what is your servant, a dog, that he should do this gross thing? Haziel's appalled. How dare you insinuate that I could do these kinds of atrocities? How dare you, Elijah, think that I could commit such barbarous acts as crushing little infants and tearing open the wounds of pregnant women? And Elisha answered, The Lord has shown me that you will become king over Syria. Now here's what happened. Ahaziel underestimated his own depravity. He did not think he was capable of the grisly crimes that Elisha predicts he will commit. And guys, we too, we too can underestimate our propensity to sin. Have you ever made the statement, oh, I'd never do that, only to experience the humiliating pain of actually doing that? I have. You remember Peter? (laughs) Oh, Lord, if they all deny you, I'll never deny you. Oh, Lord, not me. Not me. I'll never deny you, Lord. 
And then Jesus turns to Peter and he said, Peter, before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. <laughs> Lo and behold, Peter had done it. Never underestimate your potential. Never underestimate your potential. Never underestimate my potential for evil. Apart from the grace of God, guys, we're a mess. Spurgeon once wrote, Our ignorance of the depravity of our own hearts is a startling fact. And indeed it is. Apart from God's grace, there are no limits to the depth of sin that we can sink. We need to live in a daily dependence upon Jesus. We need to understand how desperate we are for the grace of God, for His help in our lives. Well, verse 14 says, Then Haziel departed from Elisha and came to his master who said to him, What did Elisha say to you? And he answered, He told me you would surely recover, which of course was only part of the prediction, wasn't it? But it happened on the next day that he took a thick cloth and dipped it in water and spread it over his face so that he died. Haziel suffocates King Ben-Hadid. It was an assassination. And Haziel reigned in his place. Archaeologists have unearthed an ancient Assyrian inscription. It's called the Berlin inscription. And it reads, Haziel, the son of nobody, seized the throne. He was the son of nobody. He was a usurper. He had no claim to the throne. He had no dynastic claim to the Syrian throne. He usurped the throne, assassinated Ben-Hadid, and ruled in his place. Verse 16. Now in the fifth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, Jehoshaphat, having been king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, began to reign as king of Judah. He was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. Now here is where you and me are going to get confused without that little sheet of paper I gave you tonight. First, the names Joram and Jehoram are used interchangeably. They're variants of the same name. And what we have here for 10 years or so, Jehoram, the son of Ahab, rules in the northern kingdom of Israel, while Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, rules in the southern kingdom of Judah. It's like having two George Bushes to keep up with. And Judah's Jehoram makes a fatal mistake. He weds an unbeliever named Athaliah. And what made this woman so sinister is that she was the daughter of King Ahab. And you can bet she followed his idolatrous practices. This is why an unequal yoke is never a joke. Don't forget, marry an unbeliever and you get the devil as your father-in-law. Not a good deal. Well, this evil woman, Athaliah, she brings idolatry, the idolatry of her parents, Ahab and Jezebel, into the southern kingdom of Judah. 2 Chronicles 21 says that after taking the throne, Jehoram killed his brothers to wipe out any rivals to the throne. And Josephus, the Jewish historian, says that the heinous act was carried out at the insistence of Athaliah. She was a very wicked woman and she had political aspirations. And Judah's Jehoram walked in the way of the kings of Israel, just as the house of Ahab had done. For the daughter of Ahab was his wife, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord, 
Yet the Lord would not destroy Judah for the sake of his servant David, as he promised him to give a lamp to him and his sons forever. Evidently, Jehoram's godly father, Jehoshaphat, arranged this marriage, hoping to strengthen the alliance between the two kingdoms, Judah in the south and Israel in the north. The opposite actually occurred. It was ill-advised on his part to ask his son to marry an unbeliever. And that's always an ill-advised move if you do the same. Well, the next few verses show just how Judah's strength was weakened by this alliance. In his days, Edom, this was Judah's neighbor to the southwest, revolted against Judah's authority and made a king over themselves. So Joram went to Zaire. This is not the country of Zaire. This was an Edomite city. And all his chariots with him. Then he rose by night and attacked the Edomites who had surrounded him. And the captains of the chariots and the troops fled to their tents. Thus Edom has been in revolt against Judah's authority to this day. And Libna revolted at that time. Libna was probably a Philistine city. And so, you know, King Jehoram, he wasn't a very strong leader. And as a result, Edom revolts to the southwest. On the west side, the Philistines revolt. He's got a shaky hold on things. Now the rest of, of the acts of Joram and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And we're going to study more about him when we get to the Chronicles, the book of Chronicles. So Joram rested with his fathers and he was buried with his fathers in the city of David. Then Ahaziah, his son, reigned in his place. In the twelfth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, this is the other Joram, this is the guy now king over the northern kingdom of Israel, Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaziah was 22 years old when he became king. Pretty young guy to be king. And he reigned one year in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Athaliah, the granddaughter of Omri, king of Israel. And he walked in the way of the house of Ahab and did evil in the sight of the Lord like the house of Ahab, for he was the son-in-law of the house of Ahab. Jehoram of Israel was actually the uncle of Ahaziah of Judah. Now he went with Joram, the son of Ahab, to war against Haziel, king of Syria, at Ramoth-Gilead. And the Syrians wounded Joram. Then King Joram went back to Jezreel to recover from the wounds which the Syrians had inflicted on him at Ramah, when he fought against Haziel, king of Syria. And Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, went down to see Joram, the son of Ahab, in Jezreel. Hope you're looking at your little sheet. Because he was sick. His illness, apparently, was a complication from his battle wounds. Now, 2 Kings chapters 9 and 10 records God's judgment on the idolatrous house of Ahab, which includes now both Jehoram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah. They're both connected to the house of Ahab. You know, recently there was a Ukrainian man who walked into the Kiev Zoo. He lured himself by a rope into a concrete enclosure that held four man-eating lions. And as he did, he was shouting and he was challenging God. God will save me if he exists. Sounds like a challenge to me. He was tempting God. For some reason, the man took off his shoes and then walked toward one of the lionesses. 
she knocked him down and she severed his carotid artery, killing him instantly. Helpless zoo officials and a stunned crowd can only watch. A spokesman for the Kiev Zoo said this was the first incident of this kind at the zoo. I'm glad. I would suspect so. And that might be true for the zoo. But in real life, this happens very, very often. Somebody thumbs their nose in God's face. Somebody mocks God. Somebody runs roughshod over God's laws as if he were impotent to judge. Someone casts doubt on God's existence or questions God's reality. If you do that or if you know someone who does, don't be surprised if the lion of the tribe of Judah doesn't knock them down. God does bring judgment on sin. God has mercy. God is patient. God does not want any to perish, but all to come to repentance. But judgment day does come. Sometimes in this life, always in the hereafter. But judgment day does come. And this is what happens to the house of Ahab in chapters 9 and 10. Remember, no one was more blatant and more blasphemous in his idolatry than was King Ahab and his queen Jezebel. I mean, even today, you know, you want to say something nasty about some lady or something, you call her a what? A Jezebel. It carries that connotation. Even today, thousands of years later, this woman was awful. This man was terrible. Ahab treated the law of God with disdain. He made Baal worship the state religion of the northern kingdom. Even paid the salaries of Baal's prophets from the coffers of the government. Put the prophets of Baal on the governmental payroll. That's how far it went. He was Israel's most wicked king. Even after he was dead, his idolatrous influence crippled both kingdoms, north and south. And it was only a matter of time before God's judgment came to the house of Ahab. And now we're there. Chapter 9. And Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, Get yourself ready. Take this flask of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth Gilead. Now Elisha's getting older. He's, he's getting on up there. And so he's starting to delegate. He's starting to pass on responsibilities. This is going to be a daring mission. You know, this guy's going to anoint a new king, start a coup d'etat. And so he delegates this task. Jewish tradition identifies this young prophet that he chooses as Jonah. Remember Jonah the prophet? Don't know for sure, but that's a possibility. Now, when you arrive at that place, he says, look there for Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, and go in and make him rise up from among his associates and take him to an inner room. Then take this flask of oil and pour it on his head and say, thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. Then open the door and get out of there as fast as you can. Scram, split, get out of Dodge. Simple instructions for a monumental act. God is going to raise up a man to take vengeance on the house of Ahab, and the man's name is Jehu. Verse 4. So the young man, the servant of the prophet, he went to Ramoth Gilead, and when he arrived, there were the captains of the army sitting. And he said, I have a message for you, commander. These were all now generals in the Israeli army. They're all kind of sitting around, you know. Just, uh, I don't know what they were doing, but they were sitting around. 
And, and he says, who's Jehu? And Jehu said, for which one of us? And he said, for you, commander. And then he arose and he went into the house. And the young prophet, he poured the oil on his head and he said to him, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I have anointed you king over the people of the Lord, over Israel. And you remember the anointing of oil was symbolic of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Jehu is now anointed with the power of God and for a specific mission. His reign will be focused on a primary task. He is going to be used by God to exercise judgment on Ahab's lineage, on the house of Ahab. Verse 7, you shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master, that I may avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab all the males in Israel, both bond and free. And here it is again. How many of you read the old King James Version? Anybody? Some of you do, yeah. You'll see. You see it there in verse 8. It says this, For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab him that peeth against the wall. That's the literal Hebrew uh, rendering of it. That, that one who peeths against the wall, that's a Hebrew idiom for a male. And if you've ever raised little boys you know how true of an idiom that actually is. Anyway, I just thought you'd be interested in that. I, I always like to throw in the Hebrew nuances, you know, and the deep theological things we, we can gain from the original languages. You know, so. God is saying that Jehu is going to kill all the males in the house of Ahab. And verse 8 actually quotes verbatim Elijah's prophecy against the house of Ahab back in 1 Kings chapter 21. You could check that out later. Well, the young prophet, he continues in verse 9. So I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahiah. You remember what Ahiah said when he, when he came up to greet you, don't you? Ahiah, doing. Anyway, that's another story. Basha and Jeroboam. Both of these families ended in a coup, and new families took over in their place. So both these kings, you know, they, they didn't pass on their throne to their descendants. They were cut off in midstream, and that's what's going to happen here. He concludes, the dogs shall eat Jezebel on the plot of ground at Jezreel, and there shall be none to bury her. And he did what he was told. He opened the door and he fled. <laughs> Nothing like dropping the bomb and then flying back home. <laughs> Verse 11. Then Jehu came out to the servants of his master. And one said to him, is all well? Why did this madman come to you? Now notice these army generals. They called the prophet of God a madman. It's a derogatory term. In other words, why, why did this Jesus freak come down to talk to you? Understand, the world will always view the man who is sold out to God as a little crazy. That's just how the world's going to view us. Don't be surprised if you get treated as a fool for Christ's sake. And if you shy away from that kind of persecution, you won't be walking very far with God. Trust me, it's just going to happen. Expect it. Happened to this guy. Well, Jehu responds, ah, you know the man in his babble. 
Now, why Jehu said this, I'm not sure, but maybe he wanted time to think. I mean, this all just happened real fast. And I'm sure he's got questions and a man just left. And so he's trying to think, maybe I, I just need a little time to sort this out. Or, or, or maybe he doubted the prophecy. That's even a possibility. But for whatever reason, he tries to downplay the prophet's visit. Ah, you know the man in his babble. You know, it was nothing. <laughs> this is kind of funny, though. Realize Jehu has just been anointed with a ram's horn full of oil by this prophet. He's poured it out on his head. He's standing there drenched with olive oil. I mean, he's standing there with his head slicker than the Alaskan pipeline. And they say, what's wrong? What's going on? Oh, nothing's going on. It just, it just doesn't fly. You know, everybody knows something went on in that back room with this young prophet. And they said, Allah, tell us now. And so he said, Thus and thus he spoke to me, saying, Thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. And then each man hastened to take his garment and put it under him on the top of the steps. In other words, they, they rolled out the red carpet treatment for him. And they blew their trumpets, saying, Jehu is king. They, they rally around him. This is a good idea. So Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram. Now Joram had been defending Ramoth-Gilead, he and all Israel, against Hazael, king of Syria. But King Joram had returned to Jezreel to recover from the wounds which the Syrians had inflicted on him when he fought with Hazael, king of Syria. And Jehu said, If you are so minded, let no one leave or escape from the city to go and tell it in Jezreel. Now Jehu is about to launch an overthrow of the government. And he hopes to rely on the element of surprise. This is his best advantage. And so he, he tells them, all, hey, let's, let's maintain our secrecy for now. Verse 16. So Jehu rode in a chariot, and he went to Jezreel, for Joram was laid up there. And, Ahaz, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, had come down to see Joram. And so they both, both of these descendants of Ahab are there together in Jezreel. Now a watchman stood on the tower in Jezreel, and he saw the company of Jehu as he came. And he said, I see a company of men. And Joram said, Get a horseman and send him to meet them, and let him say, Is it peace? And, and so the horseman went to meet him and said, Thus says the king, Is it peace? And Jehu said, What have you to do with peace? Turn around and follow me. Well, he probably read the look in Jehu's eyes. I mean, there was violence, there was judgment, not peace on Jehu's mind. Jehu meant business. This messenger decides to defect. And so the watchman reported saying, The messenger went to them, but is not coming back. Then he sent out a second horseman who came to them and said, Thus says the king, Is it peace? And Jehu answered, What have you to do with peace? Turn around and follow me. So the watchman reported saying, He went up to them and is not coming back. And the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously. You could tell by how he was whipping those horses and driving that chariot that this was the general Jehu. This was a man of action. Jehu had a no-nonsense reputation. He was on his way to do battle, not pay a friendly visit. That was obvious by how he was controlling that chariot. Then Joram said, Make ready. And his chariot was made ready. And then Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, went out 
each in his chariot. And they went out to meet Jehu and met him on the property. And notice, oh my, this is astonishing. Talk about divine ironies. And met him on the property of Naboth, the Jezreelite. You remember Naboth? You remember Naboth's vineyard? This was the plot of ground that had been coveted by that wicked king Ahab. Naboth's vineyard was sitting right next door to King Ahab's palace there in Jezreel. And Ahab had been eyeing that parcel. He wanted that vineyard. He wanted to buy it from his neighbor, but his neighbor wouldn't sell. Naboth refused. And that's when Ahab came home one day and he began pouting and crying. Oh, I want that vineyard. And that's when Jezebel said, what in the world's wrong with you? And he told her what had happened. And so the wicked king, queen, Jezebel, she went and she hired scoundrels to falsely accuse Naboth. He was stoned to death, allowing Ahab to take possession of that vineyard like he wanted. It was an act of God's providence now that Jehu meets the house of Ahab right on the very spot, right at the scene of the crime. Amazing. Now it happened when Joram saw Jehu that he said, Is it peace, Jehu? And so he answered, What peace? As long as the harlotries of your mother Jezebel and her witchcraft are so many. And my, can you hear the righteous anger in his words. How can there be peace when the laws of God are neglected and his people bow to idols? Guys, there can be no peace with God until there is repentance in our hearts. There can be no peace with God until we turn from our sin and ask for forgiveness. There can be no real peace until we surrender our lives to God and to His will. I like this phrase. You've probably seen it before. No Jesus, K-N-O-W, Jesus, no peace. No Jesus, N-O, Jesus. No peace. Still true. But Jehu's blunt words sort of tip off Joram as to his true intentions. And so he starts to run. And he calls for his nephew to get out of Dodge as well. Then Joram turned around and fled and said to Ahaziah, Treachery, Ahaziah! He wants to kill us! Now Jehu drew his bow with full strength. And shot Jehoram between his arms. And the arrow came out his heart. Hit him right between his shoulder blades. And it just, boom, right through his chest. And he sank down in his chariot. Then Jehu said to Bidkar, his captain, Pick him up and throw him into the track of the field of Naboth the Jezreelite. For remember, when you and I were riding together behind Ahab his father, that the Lord laid this burden upon him. Surely I saw yesterday... The blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, says the Lord. And I will repay you on this plot, says the Lord. Now therefore take and throw him on the plot of ground according to the word of the Lord. He was shot on the stolen plot. How's that for God's irony? Isn't it interesting? When God spoke to Jehu, he said, Surely I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth. It had been 12 years since Ahab's crimes. But to the Lord, it seemed like just yesterday. 
Guys, sin has no statute of limitations. Time does not heal with God. If you're sitting back and you're thinking, oh, God will get over it, you know, time will heal. (laughs) You've got the wrong idea. Time doesn't heal things with God. If you want to resolve your sin with God, you need to repent from it, not ignore it. Verse 27. But when Ahaziah, king of Judah, saw this, he fled by the road to Beth Hagan. So Jehu pursued him and said, Shoot him also in the chariot. And they shot him at the ascent of Gur, which is by Ibelim. Ahaziah was headed south, back to Judah. He was about halfway, really, from Jezreel to Samaria when he was hit. And he knew he was losing blood. He knew he was losing strength. He needed to find a hideout. And so he turned eastward toward Megiddo. And there he fled to Megiddo, and he died there. And his servants carried him in the chariot of Israel and buried him in his tomb with his fathers in the city of David. In the eleventh year of Joram, the son of Ahab, Ahaziah had become king over Judah. Another member of the house of Ahab perishes at the hands of Jehu. He is fulfilling his mission with a vengeance. Verse 30. Now when Jehu had come to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it. And she put paint on her eyes and adorned her head and looked through the window. Jezebel was so vain she wouldn't show her face without putting on her makeup first. Dolling up her little hair. She's an old lady by now. She's still worried about her appearance. Oh, I got to put my makeup on. Got to fix up my hair before I can stick my head out the window. Then as Jehu entered at the gate, she said, Is it peace, Zimri, murderer of your master? Oh, my. This was such a judgmental comment. This comment is dripping with hatred and sarcasm. Remember, Zimri was the man who murdered a previous king of Israel named Basha. And there is also an implied threat in her words. For Ahab's father, Omri, was the assassin who killed Zimri and created a new dynasty that Ahab inherited. In other words, she's saying, you're a Zimri. You've just assassinated the king. But, but in saying that, her house, Ahab, Omri, Ahab's father, they're the ones that had killed Zimri. She's saying, you know, we're going to overthrow you, Jehu. So there's an implied thing going on there too. And he looked up at the window and he said, who is on my side? Who? And so two or three eunuchs looked out at him. Hey, Jezebel was probably such a mean old bird that she'd been mean to her servants too. And now they jump at a chance to play a role in her downfall, literally her downfall. Then he said, throw her down. And so they grab the queen, throw her down out of the window, And some of her blood splattered on the wall and on the horses. And Jehu trampled her underfoot. Imagine Jehu rearing up his steed, pounding the life out of the old bag Jezebel. This guy was not horsing around, trust me. Jezebel's body was crushed under the hoofs of horses. And then Jehu... He's hungry, man. There's a Waffle House right there. 
And so when he had gone in, he ate and drank. And then he said, go now, see to this accursed woman and bury her, for she was a king's daughter. Give her a decent burial. So they went to bury her, but they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. Therefore they came back and told him. One commentator writes, Her brains and heart that devised such mischief against the servants of God are now strewn upon the walls. And Jehu said, This is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite. 1 Kings 21 verse 23, if you want to look it up later. 1 Kings 21 23, saying, On the plot of ground at Jezreel, dogs shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel shall be refuse on the surface of the field, in the plot at Jezreel, so that they shall not say, Here lies Jezebel. All that was left of Jezebel was her skull, her feet, and her palms, because she was devoured by the wild dogs who came and ate her. The dogs played fetch with Jezebel's bones. The old gal who worked such wickedness in Israel in the end goes from princess to Perina. Dog food, man. At Jezebel's funeral, the pastor said, Doggone it. (laughs) I can try again. Okay, all right. In reality, though, the pastor could have preached a message on God's justice. For that's what's being served here. The justice of God. Judgment Day does come. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow once wrote, The mills of God grind slowly, yet they grind exceeding small. Though with patience He stands waiting, with exactness grinds He all. God is patient. He desires for us to repent. But if we don't, though it may take a while for God to execute His judgment, He is always faithful to do so. And the judgment doesn't end with Jezebel. Jehu fulfills God's word to all the males connected to the house of Ahab. They also will be cut off. And in chapter 10, Jehu wages a campaign of genocide against anyone related to Ahab and Jezebel. Now Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria. And Jehu wrote and sent letters to Samaria, to the rulers of Jezreel, to the elders, and to those who reared Ahab's sons, saying, Now, as soon as this letter comes to you, since your master's sons are with you and you have chariots and horses, a fortified city also, and weapons, choose the best qualified of your master's sons. Set him on his father's throne and fight for your master's house. But they were exceedingly afraid and said, Look, two kings shall not stand up to him. How then can we stand? And he who was in charge of the house and he was in charge of the city, the elders also, And those who reared the sons sent to Jehu, saying, We are your servants. We will do all you tell us, but we will not make anyone king. Do what is good in your sight. Then he wrote a second letter to them, saying, If you are for me and will obey my voice, take the heads of the men, your master's sons, and come to me at Jezreel by this time tomorrow. Now the king's sons, seventy persons, were with the great men of the city who were rearing them. And so it was when the letter came to them that they took the king's sons and slaughtered 70 persons, put their heads in baskets and sent them to 
him at Jezreel. Boy, oh boy, these 70 sons, they were a real basket case, no doubt about it. The city was hoping to win Jehu's favor, to really get ahead. Seventy heads. And then a messenger came and told him, saying, They have brought the heads of the king's sons. And he said, Lay them in two heaps at the entrance of the gate until morning. This was done often in the ancient world. You know, everyone who entered the city would go in and out of the gate. And therefore it became a public gathering ground. And so it was a often... Public displays would take place outside the gates. And here, this is what's going on. They take these 70 skulls and they pile 35 on one side of the gate, 35 on the other side of the gate. So everybody will see that God, that judgment does come, that God has taken judgment, has judged Baal worship and has judged the family that instigated it in Israel, Ahab and Jezebel. And so it was in the morning that he went out and stood and said to all the people, You are righteous. Indeed, I conspired against my master and killed him. But who killed all these? Know now that nothing shall fall to the earth of the word of the Lord, which the Lord spoke concerning the house of Ahab. For the Lord has done what he spoke by his servant Elijah. God promised to judge the house of Ahab for their wicked influence on Israel. And his word is being fulfilled. Everyone knows now. So Jehu killed all who remained of the house of Ahab in Jezreel. And all his great men and his close acquaintances and his priests until he left him none remaining. And here's the first clue that Jehu doesn't have the purest of motives. Up until now, he's done God's will. But God never told him to kill Ahab's generals and his advisors and his priests. Just the house or the family of Ahab. Certainly it took A brave man, a warrior, a man who was not afraid of violence in the sword to do the job that God had called Jehu to do. But I believe he went overboard. He grew too bloodthirsty. We'll see more. And he arose and he departed and he went to Samaria. And on the way at Beth Eked of the shepherds, Jehu met with the brothers of Ahaziah king of Judah and said, Who are you? And they answered, We are brothers of Ahaziah. We have come down to greet the sons of the king and the sons of the queen mother. They shouldn't have said that. And he said, Take them alive. So they took them alive and killed them at the well of Beth Eked, 42 men, and he left none of them. He captured, again, brothers of Ahaziah, also relatives of Ahab, and he executed them publicly. And I'm sure of all of Ahab's family, They too were idolaters. It's not like they're all being killed for Ahab's sake. They all were guilty of the same crimes that had been perpetrated by their father and by their mother, Ahab and Jezebel. The offspring were as guilty as the parents. Now when he departed from there, he met Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, coming to meet him. And he greeted him and he said to him, Is your heart right as my heart is toward your heart? And Jehonadab answered, It is. Now the Rechabites... They were a reform movement in Israel that tried to restore purity and morality to the northern kingdom of Israel. And Jehonadab was their founder. We'll get to them again. In Jeremiah 35, the Rechabites are used as an example of faithfulness in the midst of rebellious times. Josephus says that Jehu and Jehonadab were friends. And they both detested the luxuriousness and the extravagance of the lifestyles of Israel's kings. Well, Jehu said, if it is, give me your hand. 
So he gave him his hand and he took him up to him into the chariot. You know, Jehonadab now joins Jehu. And then he said, come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. And do you detect some pride in Jehu's voice? Maybe you do. Yes, judgment had finally come to Israel. And though it was predicted and though it was necessary, all this bloodshed was breaking God's heart, trust me. Jehu is the one who's enjoying the role a little too much. And now Jehu, he invites Jehonadab to come along for the bloody ride. And he knows his friend will be, or he thinks his friend will be delighted in the fact that God is cleaning house in Israel. And so they had him ride in his chariot. When he came to Samaria, he killed all who remained to Ahab in Samaria till he had destroyed them according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke to Elijah. Again, judgment finally comes. Now, in my mind, verse 18 is where Jehu blows it, where he really goes too far. Then Jehu gathered all the people together and said to them, Ahab served Baal a little. Jehu will serve him much. Now, therefore, call to me all the prophets of Baal, all his servants and all his priests. Let no one be missing, for I have a great sacrifice for Baal. Whoever is missing shall not live. But Jehu acted deceptively with the intent of destroying the worshipers of Baal. And Jehu said, proclaim a solemn assembly for Baal. So they proclaimed it. Jehu feigns allegiance to Baal and he draws out all of the idolaters. He wants to centralize all the diehard Baal worshipers in one location for a mass destruction. Then Jehu sent throughout all Israel and all the worshipers of Baal came so that there was not a man left who did not come. So they came into the temple of Baal and the temple of Baal was full from one end to the other. God's orders for Jehu, remember, were to kill the house of Ahab, not all the house of Israel. He's going way too far here. And he said to the one in charge of the, of the wardrobe, bring out vestments for all the worshipers of Baal. So he brought out vestments for them, apparently to identify them. Verse 23, Then Jehu and Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, went into the temple of Baal and said to the worshipers of Baal, Search and see that no servants of the Lord, Jehovah, are here with you, but only the worshipers of Baal. You know, he doesn't want to kill an innocent Hebrew who mistakenly stumbled through the wrong door. And so they went in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. Now Jehu had appointed for himself 80 men on the outside and had said, If any of the men whom I have brought into your hands escapes, whoever lets him escape, it shall be his life for the life of the other. That's the motivation. Now it happened as soon as he had made an end of the offering, the burnt offering, that Jehu said to the guard and to the captains, Go in and kill them. Let no one come out. Now's the time to do it. And they killed them with the edge of the sword. Then the guards and the officers threw them out and went into the inner room of the temple of Baal. And they brought the sacred pillars out of the temple of Baal and burned them. Then they broke down the sacred pillar of Baal and tore down the temple of Baal and made it a refuse dump to this day. Thus Jehu destroyed Baal from Israel. The site of the temple of Baal became a public toilet, an outhouse, a refuse dump. And it probably indicates what God thinks of any worship, Baal worship included, that doesn't bow down to Him. Now God will reward Jehu for his anti-Ahab crusade. In fact, the next four kings in Israel will all be Jehu's descendants. But as I've mentioned, 
God was not completely happy with Jehu's actions. In Hosea chapter 1, verse 4, there God predicts, I will avenge the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu. Evidently, God also thought that Jehu went overboard. Understand, God hates sin, but God still loves the sinner. And though he desired to rid the land of Baal worship, I'm sure it grieved God to watch all these worshipers slaughtered. God had run out of patience with the initiators of this idolatry, the household of Ahab and Jezebel. But he was not ready to judge the whole nation, not yet. God wanted Israel to repent. You see, Jehu had a righteous zeal, but he lacked compassion. And neither does Jehu completely abolish Israel's idolatry. That's the irony. For the next verse tells us, like all of Israel's kings before him, Jehu also succumbed to a form of idolatry. Verse 29. However, Jehu did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. That is, from the golden calves that were at Bethel and Dan. And the Lord said to Jehu, Because you have done well in doing what is right in my sight, and have done to the house of Ahab all that was in my heart, your son shall sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. But Jehu took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord God of Israel with all his heart, for he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam who had made Israel sin. How in the world does this work? The instrument that God uses to bring judgment against sin falls prey to the similar sin. How does that work? I mean, you go out, God uses you to judge sin and you fall victim to that very same sin. Kind of like the guy on the, you know, stamp out pornography crusade who ends up finding, we find out later that he was addicted to pornography. That was kind of Jehu. He started out well, but he ended up a failure. Spurgeon has some harsh words for Jehu. He says this, Hating one sin, he loved another. Thus he proved the fear of the Most High did not reign in his heart. He was merely a hired servant and received the throne as his wages, but a child of God he never was. That's some strong words. Jehu was the classic example of the man Jesus mentioned in Matthew chapter 7. You remember him, the guy with the board in his own eye trying to remove the speck in his brother's eye. That was Jehu. It's been said, we are all umpires at heart. We love to call balls and strikes in other people's lives. And I'll add one more to that. We call balls and strikes on us too. But our strike zone is a lot more lenient when we're pitching than when we're batting. Don't you play the hypocrite. Clean up your own life and then help your brother. Verse 32. In those days, the Lord began to cut off parts of Israel. And Haziel conquered them in all the territory of Israel from the Jordan eastward. All the land of Gilead, Gad, Reuben, and Manasseh. From Aurora, which is by the river Arnon, including Gilead and Bashan. The land east of the Jordan was being conquered now by Syria. And now the rest of the acts of Jehu, all that he did and all his might, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? And so Jehu rested with his fathers, and they buried him in Samaria. Then Jehoahaz, his son, reigned in his place. 
And the period that Jehu reigned over Israel in Samaria was 28 years. Now chapter 10 closes with one more descendant of Ahab still on the loose. Remember the Jezebel of Judah, Athaliah. Remember the daughter of Ahab? She's still on the loose in the southern kingdom of Judah. And we'll find out what happens to her next time.